Hello, everybody, and welcome to Indie Cult, the podcast where we discuss the struggles and learning experiences of independent artists and creative minds. I'm George, and today I am joined by John Soul and Evan. Welcome, boys. Welcome, boys. It's it's always it's always been too long. I think. Yeah, for real. Yo, uh, Ev, well, me and Scoof yesterday when we were hanging out. We were saying like, you know, we brought it up at the same time, like imagine that we actually got to record flan- like uh, actually like film flannel mouth, like get the mm-hmm. on-site production done and then like COVID hits and then like we're in, we're in post-production like. That would have been ideal. Yeah, the groundwork <laughs> for that would have been like just even just focusing more on, on the sound aspect and, mm-hmm. you know, the musical uh, component could, you know, have really like been super enriched, but this is something no one saw coming. So you just kind of like have to adjust and adapt. Yeah, I'm sure there are a number of films that that couldn't be finished. So they're kind of probably just working with whatever they have. I mean, I'm sure everyone's like, you know, super ecstatic about that CGI Scooby-Doo movie, Scoob coming out. You know, that was probably like a huge production for them to get done and, and roll it out. And, kind of pray for the best kind of thing, but they might have it made because it's kind of like the only new movie out right now. So like even I'm just because of the sheer fact that it's something that's new, like I'll even want to sit down and take time out of my week to like watch that probably, which is sad. Yeah. You know, I actually will probably watch that movie. Because, <laughs> no, but because I think Evan knows this, but, um, I mean, I used to be, I mean, I guess I still am, but I, I used to be a, a massive uh, Hanna-Barbera fan. Oh, okay. So sense, I used man. to love, I used to love, all, I used to watch all that shit. Scooby-Doo, uh, Yogi Bear, Space mm-hmm. Ghost, all yeah, that I stuff. Yeah, I mean, what's not to love about it? And it, but I, I just feel like, yeah, I, I feel you. I, I grew up on that kind of stuff too. Space Ghost, yeah. oof. <laughs> <laughs> And there's also the Adult Swim, like Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Oh, that was the best. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, that was they the kind of like brought. He was a, the host of a talk show. I, yeah. I honestly, Zorak, Zorak was like yeah, his Zorak, like Max yeah, Weinberg yeah. or like his like, you know, sideshow guy that would like you know talk to people, and it was just like, I understood it back then. It's really weird. Like my even like my parents would be like, why the why the hell are you watching this? And like I just get it. I just understand <laughs> it already. <laughs> I kind of want to talk about something. All right, go. All right, thank you. <laughs> so um, this, this, I think at first this will seem like it's the antithesis of indie cult. But I think if you just let me like get through this, I think you guys will see what I'm trying to get at. Okay. Um, so this is, um, I guess I want I want to start with a story actually. Yeah, man, I'm 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 really close to like my mic right now. I'm very enwrapped and enthralled. Okay, I, I don't. Okay, so so this is a, this is this is a, this is this story is 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 to chronicle, I guess, a series a series of of events in the film industry. So 
let me just get through this. I think at some point you guys might figure out where I'm going with this. You're giving me way too much credit, but continue. <laughs> no, I think I think you might. I think you might. So we're going to go back to 1938. Mm-hmm. In 1938, a comic book was released called Action Comics Number 1. This comic featured the first appearance of Superman. Superman was arguably the first superhero. This character would later transform the landscape of, of comics and pulp fiction and radio and television and film. Superman was created by two kids, 19 years old, from Cleveland, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And before they were shipped off to war, a company approached them and offered to buy Superman with the promise of printing comic books with that character for the whole world to see. And being two kids about to be shipped off to foreign land to fight a war that they didn't start, they signed. And that company would later become what we now know as the behemoth DC Comics. Mm-hmm. When Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster came back, they had to sit by the sidelines and watch as their character entered the zeitgeist. They watched as others accepted the accolades bestowed upon Superman. They watched and nobody knew who they were and nobody knew their names. And at one point, Superman even became a Broadway play. And Joe Schuster would sit outside the theater and watch in amazement as celebrities and politicians wow. lined up to see his character. And the reason he sat outside and watched is because he couldn't afford a ticket. In 1978, Richard Donner made Superman the movie. Now that's a movie that I watched as a kid and had a big impact on me. It really instilled this sense of, of wonder that you're supposed to get from a character like Superman. So ever since then, I was really hooked on, on everything Superman related and that's what kind of got me into starting to read comics as a kid. Mm-hmm. And that was during a time when it wasn't cool to read comics. If, if anything, it was the opposite. Yeah. So, you know, Superman is often criticized as being this perfect Boy Scout goody two-shoes figure with no real depth to him. But ultimately, especially at that time, you know, superheroes were meant to be for kids. So there's nothing better than a character that always does what's right. Someone for like kids to idolize and have a role model. The superhero's superhero. Fast forward to 1980. Superman 2 was released. Richard Donner... I'm getting to that. All right. Richard Donner was supposed... Superman 2 was supposed to be Richard Donner's follow-up to Superman the movie. But towards the end of production, he was fired. And Richard Lester was hired. And he reshot the majority of the movie. And that's the version that was released. Richard Donner's version was not to see the light of day. A few years later, in 1989... Tim Burton made Batman. And this movie transformed the public image of Batman that used to be perceived as this, as this very silly, campy, cartoonish character. But the 1989 version of Batman took inspiration from comics like The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke and, and uh, made people realize that, that Batman can be this dark, violent, brooding figure like the one that we're accustomed to today. Yeah. 
And after two successful movies, Burton was told that he needs to make Batman more family-friendly. He refused and left the project. And Michael Keaton, the star, who played Bruce Wayne, uh, followed suit. He was replaced by Joel Schumacher, who turned out two Batman movies that were not well-received. In 2005, Christopher Nolan made Batman Begins. This movie restored the public image of Batman to its former glory. I thought Batman be- I actually thought Batman Begins was supposed to be a prequel to Tim Burton's Batman because at the time the concept of a reboot which we all know we are, which we all know a little too well nowadays mm-hmm. was alien. There was no such thing as a reboot. Um, but then Nolan went on to make two more movies and he made the Dark Knight trilogy. Mm-hmm. In 2013, Zack Snyder made Man of Steel, a new Superman reboot. Now, when I went in to see Man of Steel, I was expecting to get that same sense of wonder I got back when I was a kid when I saw Richard Donner's Superman the movie. I was expecting Christopher Reeve. I was expecting Richard Donner's Superman. And that's not what I got. But in hindsight, that's okay because that's not the movie that it was. That's not the movie that it was supposed to be. That's not the movie it was made to be. Then Zack Snyder followed up Man of Steel with Batman v Superman. And the follow-up, and there was other DC movies that came out in between, but the true follow-up to that movie was Justice League. Justice League, yeah. Yeah. And Justice League was directed by Zack Snyder. But at the end of production, he had to leave because his daughter committed suicide. So Joss Whedon, the director of the first two Avengers movies, was brought on to finish the movie. And history repeated itself. The final product was comprised of mostly reshoots and rewrites, which resulted in a complete tonal shift and the runtime being cut in half. This resulted in a fan outrage. And an online campaign started to hashtag release the Snyder cut. This fan campaign would buy billboards and plane banners and they raised 200K, almost 200K for suicide prevention. Hmm. So you guys remember earlier when I said that Richard Donner's Superman 2 never saw the light of day? Mm-hmm. That was true when I said that, but it did see the light of day 26 years later. In, 20, in, in, in 2006, Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut was released. Now back to Justice League, Zack Snyder has disowned the version of Justice League that was released in theaters. But luckily, he won't have to wait 26 years because Zack Snyder's Justice League is coming out in 2021. Wow. Now, why am I telling you this? This is not about independent filmmaking. This is the opposite of independent filmmaking. The reason I wanted to bring this up is because even though it's not about independent filmmaking, it's a chronicle of a history of artists struggling to get their vision brought to life. Even on a massive scale. Massive scale, small scale, and it just kind of shows that with enough dedication and and support from fans you can get that made of course richard donner had to wait a long time because he didn't have the aid of the internet at the time Mm -hmm. but someone like Zack snyder and this is not to speak on the quality of any of these movies it doesn't matter 
what the quality is. What matters is who's making this movie and if this person whose name is going to be on it, if the final product will be indicative of the work they put into it. Mm-hmm. That's why I wanted to bring this up and talk about it a little bit today. Uh, a really quick, uh, what's going to be the name of that Justice League then? Are they going to call They're it They're going to call it Zack Snyder's Justice League. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be they're they're currently deciding if it's either going to be a 4-hour movie, which is double the runtime of the which the it's supposed one that was to be, released. man. You're 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 mix, you're mixing a lot of DC characters with a lot of potent yeah. history. Like like you have to make that a long a long movie. It has to. Like I Maybe that's so it's either going to be a it's either going to be a four hour movie or a six part series. It should be whatever he decides it should be, right? Yeah, Zack yeah. Snyder's. I'll sit for four hours through that, one hundred percent, just by what it means, what it represents. You know, not like the conglomerate. You know, uh, you know, uh, machine. You know, big time movie production. Like just just that story alone, the fact that you've humbled it to like the, the, the meaning of what these timeless role models, these heroes mean to not just kids now who are growing up and are a little, you know, I don't, I don't want to put like parenting on a, on a chopping block right now. I just want to say maybe that kids, because of this unlimited access to energy, I would say they're a little more cavalier and, you know, uh, misguided maybe, so to speak, especially because there's so many more people alive at the same time now. Um, I just think that idea of having someone's true vision uh, put out the way it was supposed to be done, especially because he had worked on so many of the other projects, you know, and, and given also what's with the state of creation presently, you know, like this is something that's already kind of already almost in completion uh, you told me that Whedon uh, reshot a lot of it, correct? Yes. So basically, uh, point taken on that, you know, there is a lot of meat that Snyder probably already got anyway. Now it's all about the post-production team in finishing the 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 effects and, and composing the music and all that. And, and the that's format. what's left. The movie, the the, the, the movie is shot. Wanted. And the format that right. Snyder and maybe, wanted. Yeah, and polishing the editing. But... The movie is shot. You know, okay. Ben Affleck, you know, I don't know if maybe if this version of the movie is well received, maybe he'll want to return as Batman or something like that. That I don't know, but that that makes it a lot clearer too, because you know how you're gonna have Ben Affleck playing Bruce Wayne through a good, you know, two hours of a film and then out of nowhere it's like, oh, uh he had uh, an accident and he had facial reconstructive surgery and that's why he looks different now for the rest of the film. <laughs> well, you know, that 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 was part of the trouble with Justice League was if you pay close attention, Ben Affleck's weight fluctuates drastically mm-hmm. throughout the movie, the yeah. theatrical version, and that's because you know, he didn't know that he would be brought back for these extensive reshoots and he wasn't in Batman shape anymore. Uh, and gotcha. m- most of his scenes, he's he looked a kind of bloated. I mean, not like unhealthy way, but he wasn't in that trim shape, you know that that shape that he was in originally for the like character. In man, so like all of a man, sudden, like in Batman, he looks Superman. like a chipmunk. His <laughs> cheeks are like bulging out from the cowl, you know, just because he's a little more bloated. I and Henry that. Cavill, who played Superman, 
he was shooting um, Mission Impossible Fallout. And so when he had to be brought back in for reshoots, he had a mustache that he was contractually obligated to keep. So they had to CGI out the mustache. And now he looks like he has this fat lip in Justice League. (laughs) Because of his mustache. Wow, man. Wow, if only we had access to some stuff like that, man. (laughs) Like, that's crazy. That's wild, bro. That's that's insane. That blows my mind. That, you know, like, even, like, they went so far as to kind of, like, give Robert De Niro, like, an extra 25 years of life in The Irishman by, like, you know, making him look younger with CGI. But then, like, you see the poor guy when he's kicking someone in the the diner or or the barbershop scene when he's, like, kicking that guy. He looks like... He's about to like displace a hip, the poor man. Like, it's just like, oh yeah, like he did not movie, look the age they wanted him to look. Movie friggin' magic. Movie friggin' honestly, magic. like the, magic? the. I really, I really liked the Irishman, um, but I, I didn't really think the de aging stuff worked too well, no, and I and didn't. it's because of that reason that you said like. They did that stuff to make them look younger, but they still moved like old men. They still moved yeah, like they were sixty man, years they, old. They, they, and yeah, then when weird. when when you've got <laughs> when you've got Robert De Niro, right? You got Robert De Niro, and everyone's calling him kid, right? And I'm and I'm like, how old is he supposed to be? Like, I genuinely couldn't tell how old he was supposed to be. I was like, is he thirty? Is he fifty? How old is he? Tell you what, I never once. I never once thought he was thirty. He's the oldest young person I ever saw. But I think I think like <laughs> in, in the in the parts of the movie where he's like young and he's got like little kids and stuff, I think he's supposed to be like in his thirties. Yeah. But if anything, he just looked like a guy that looks good for sixty. You yeah. Know what I mean? Basically, yo, like if that's not the feel, because you know why? Because I've seen Mean Streets, I've seen Raging Bull, I've seen De Niro young, I've seen him young. I know what he looks like young, and I, I remember. His, I want to say lack of frailty, because he wasn't the way he looks now, obviously, because, you know, gravity, age, yeah. all that, all that shines through. And, you know, I can imagine like all the, the, the stress that that might put on an older gentleman, you know, working on a, another Scorsese project where, you know, there's so many uh, wheels in motion and so many things are happening around you. Like what I don't get is like, just give a younger person who's super hungry the chance to play that role. Like I understand it's Scorsese and he wants to get the group together for like one more hoorah, but it was irrelevant. I I think. And if you wanted these guys to play themselves, like as they were in their older years at their like present age, you know, like the beginning of the movie, they're like older, right? They're like older guys and they're like rehashing the history that led to that moment. At the end too. Like, you're telling me you can't find someone who looks like De Niro and then just dot a mole on his face? Like, he's like, (laughs) that was actually that that was actually one of the options. But what they did was they did a test where they had De Niro do lines from um, like they kind of recreated a scene from Goodfellas. Yeah. And they de-aged him. And I guess Scorsese liked how it looked. But there's a difference between like one scene where like he's sitting down talking, and there's yeah. a difference between a whole movie where he's walking around and he's beating a gun, people up, he's throwing a gun, and, and he's he about to like, like throw his back out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying, man. Like it, you really couldn't find someone who's like, yo, dude. There's so many people out there who not only just idolize Robert De Niro, but like they can definitely, you know, kind of tap into the role like of of like someone De Niro would play, like the way. 
Who's that guy who played uh, Han Solo in a solo story? Yeah, uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. I, you know, like, I, I, I don't remember his name. Yeah. I don't remember his name, but I'll give you that's a fine example of someone who obviously has a very strong acting background. Like he obviously maybe even loved Star Wars also growing up because he was very good at picking up on Fordisms, on Ford body language, on Ford mannerisms that were, were happening. You know, Exactly, like, yeah. So like you're telling me in this world that we're living in where so many people like revere these movies. Like it's it's like one of the most acclaimed, you know, universal set of movies of all time, these Scorsese pictures and you can't find someone else. So give someone else the chance. Like that's the part. I think, I think, yeah, I think he wanted, he wanted to get the gang back together. To to me, the Irishman was Scorsese's swan song to, to gangster movies. Yeah. Especially because it was like a Netflix thing. It's the biggest production thing right now. Yeah, I, I love I, I love Scorsese's gangster movies, but this was just such a perfect conclusion to the gangster, the Scorsese gangster movies that I really hope he doesn't do another gangster movie. Yeah, just because <laughs> that was the perfect. It was the perfect conclusion to his gangster movies, like it really in, was. in a thematic sense. Obviously, it's a standalone movie, but in a thematic sense, it really just closed the book on yeah. gangster movies by Martin Scorsese. Yeah, I also I don't agree. want him to not make a film if he th- feels he has something really good. Yeah, of course, but yeah, there's that too. I mean, listen, even, I don't know what I want. Okay, even even, <laughs> even, even, even like the Departed, you know, like that wasn't just the Departed. Yeah, it wasn't just like That's the gangsterisms. Great. It was also like the cop side, and then that blurring of the guys who are in. You have the undercover cop, then you have the undercover the gangster, the cop. So it's like that. That was wow. great because I think like. Get them class. If anything, I would consider that his last, like, shebang. Like, that was his, like... Like, I would consider this the last swan song, like you're saying. Like, I think that's very poetic and that that works. But where everything just worked in, like, the whole recipe of that film, I think was... Especially because it was also very transcendental of him. He kind of, like, did the stuff that we come to expect of him. Like, he had a lot of his... Uh, elements that he's used to shooting, uh, including like the takes and the angles and the uh, the actors that he also chose. But it just was a, a very grand change for him. I think it just made, it wasn't just about the mafia, you know, it wasn't just like that side of it and like kind of making the law, the, the bad guys, you know what I mean? Like it was kind of like pick your side. Like who who do you empathize more with? Like which pill would you take? Would you take the red or the blue? Which one would you rather be on? And you kind of empathize with both by the end of the film. I love The Departed. I, I thought that, I think that's one of Scorsese's best. Yeah, it is. That, I love that, that really is. That really is. Especially, like I said, because at that point, he's, he's an older gentleman. He's, uh, he's directed a lot of classics. And, you know, you kind of worry, like, you know, how much, you know, mysticism and, like, great stories can the man have left in him. And that one, to me, kind of was like, you know, the change up. That he threw and just like, he he's going strong though, man. He's going of strong, dude. He's and you know what, man. Just in in terms of the people that he's inspired, like I'm sure, like he can go to bed at night knowing that there's so many young directors and you know film aficionados out there who they admire this man so much on so many different levels and never even met him. You don't know who he I is. Do. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I do. I, he's one. I think he's one of the best. I think he will go down in history as one of the greats of all yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I strongly without believe doubt. that. Without yeah. a doubt. Without a doubt. That's what I'm saying. Like He he might be, as far as living directors, there's no question he's one of the best. He yeah. is w- one of the most New York directors ever. Yeah. And that that's actually a good departure in The Departed because yes. he said it in Boston and not New York. Yep. Yep. And that's rare for him. Mm-hmm. It is. I think he just wanted even, uh, to even even accents, in the last the temptation of Christ, Evan. <laughs> huh? Even in the last temptation of Christ, oh, uh, the, it was basically New York. All the peasants spoke <laughs> with a Brooklyn accent. Wait, 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 wait. The, the, what about the temptation of Christ? They didn't. Mel Gibson directed temptation. the Passion. The last. You're talking temptation. about the Passion of Christ. We're talking about the Last Temptation of Christ. And who directed that? Scorsese. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't. I didn't see it yet. The Passion Project. Oh. All right, well, I, uh, I, I'd rather it's, save it's our probably for documentaries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not It's not one of my favorite. It's probably my least favorite Scorsese movie. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, though, that, that still speaks volumes more than other directors who probably, like, you know, blew their load on something else and it just still, like, just doesn't touch a, a Scorsese production, you know, on that level of, you know, meticulous. And I just think his... Just his love for the art is just a large comprisal of of what makes him so good. Like he just loves the the craft of of creating film. Like a lot of you have to understand, maybe some people they do it for the money, you know, they do it for the accolades. Like I just think he does it because he he loves it. And it definitely keeps him young, you know, it keeps him very lively. You know, that that's that's a very magical thing, to say the least, about something that you can create for so long and it becomes such a big part of you. And, you know, you, you learn to love it. Like it's, you know, a family member basically. And that's, that's a freaking, if that's not something that wants to drive someone else listening to like, want to create stuff and do it lifelong as this man has done it. Like there's, there's no other reason. Scorsese is uh, an avid, an avid student of, of film. He's a, he's, mm-hmm. he's like a film historian. Which is it? Which is why it's fine for us to speak about him. He's at the end all. I feel like he would want to talk to any filmmaker about film. You know, that's I think the type of person he is. He's like a like a Dr. Dre, like somebody who, if you're gonna sit down and discuss anything with him that has any type of appeal, it would it would pertain to that the art, and like it would be like an awesome conversation. I think. I didn't know how badly I wanted Martin Scorsese and Dr. Dre to just kind of talk to each other for an hour on a podcast <laughs> until just now. <laughs> Yo, how dope would that be though? That'd like be Dr. Fire. Dre and Martin Scorsese, they just like they just have like a chat for like an hour. That'd be fire. And then they'd probably end up like hashing like a, a hip hop like a like a ten part music video of just awesomeness. He's he cast Dr. Dre in his next movie. Mm-hmm. Maybe Dr. Dre's son. Oh, no, I'm thinking about well, Ice Cube. You're thinking about Ice Cube's son? Yeah. He's a decent actor. He is, bro. Like, I, I was actually, uh, Evan and I were talking about this the other day a little bit. Um, uh, I, I really think Straight Outta Compton was a really great movie, and I think he did a great job playing his father. I think also Den of Thieves was great. I thought Den of Thieves who did he was play? A, what's up? He played who? In Den of Thieves, he played uh, a Oh, artist. in Den of Thieves. I in thought, Den of I thought you Thieves. Said, I thought you were, oh, yeah. I didn't yeah. see that. 
It's pretty good. You should check it out. It's pretty dope. I think that was his first movie too, uh, Straight Outta Compton. Yeah. So that's that's a pretty big and that's a pretty big undertaking. Yeah, that movie was definitely selling out in the theaters too. Yeah, I, I went to the theater to see it. I heard a lot of I, I heard a lot of people like when they were there, like, a lot of people were cheering and chanting in the, in the you know, cheering and chanting in the theater, and the you know obviously like their catalog of music is so great, so the soundtrack is taken care of off the bat, and just mm-hmm. that story alone is is super poetic. It's one of the most probably uh, spoken about beefs uh, of all time, considering the level that these guys were also at. You know, mm-hmm. that that's a story people like to hear, though, man. People overcoming adversity. That's why everybody gravitates towards the underdog. Yeah, you you don't want to hear about people that had it easy. You want to hear about people that struggled, that overcame. Against all odds, they made it. That's what, that's those are the stories you want to hear about. You don't want to hear about somebody who's handed everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, that's you know, it's most people are striving to gain something. So of course we want to watch something that makes us hopeful ourselves. Yeah, I would hate to be like one of those kids who just like, you know, inherited like eighty million dollars and was just like, Yeah, you know what, I'm gonna take a crack at making movies you know just because i have the, the resources and the, the the capital it doesn't matter what kind of push or running start you had if you didn't have the appetite and the the hunger to like you know like you said adversity you know like forget about criticism criticism is its whole other thing you know adversity itself and and the struggle of of putting the time together with with maybe even a crew or like a group of people that have all sacrificed something to put it towards, you know, uh, an idea or uh, one basically like building a project together. To me, that's, again, something that is the reason why people gravitate towards somebody who uh, who wants to, you know, make something of themselves. Like the guy who uh, directed Parasite, like, you know, even he said about, you know, when Tar- like Tarantino was like his one of his people that he admired and now like he's he he beat him out for an oscar you know like what what more triumphing thing to see someone who literally has come from the bottom and also someone who's coming from a completely different side of the world to like be on that ballot uh with uh someone that he considered his his idol forget about a rival and scorsese he considered an idol he beat out two Mm -hmm. of his idols exactly like to say to say like that's a beautiful story outside of the story they made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Tarantino was always, and I remember uh, Bong even directly thanked Tarantino for being one of the only people that, like, championed his movies back when nobody knew who he was. Tarantino was always in the know about foreign films, and he would always say, like, "Go check out Bong's new movie." He would, he would like promote his movies. Yeah, that's all it takes, man. Let me ask you guys a question. So you, you you guys hear, I mean, we hear a lot about like the cliche of the tortured artist and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Do you guys think that you you need a little bit of that in order to be a great artist? Do you think that you need to ha- be a little bit tortured in order to to, to produce great art? It's, uh, it sounds like uh, we're visiting the film Whiplash. Yeah, maybe we are. Hmm. I think that inherently a lot of people have used art to cope with things that happened in their lives and um, some of the greatest things we see 
probably do come from pain. It's part of the human condition, something that we live with. And I think part of that torture uh, can create something beautiful. But not that we can't get there without it either. Mm-hmm. What about you, John? Uh, I'm going to quote something from a movie. And I'm quoting it because a friend of mine told me the quote, and I just searched it, and it's from a flick. Uh, I think Ed Harris plays Ben in a movie called Kodachrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's 2017. So I'm going to quote this from uh, the film. Um, let me tell you something. Happiness is bullshit. It's the great myth of the late 20th century. You think Picasso was happy? You think Hemingway was? Hendrix? They were miserable shits. No art worth a damn was ever created out of happiness. Can tell you that. Ambition, narcissism, sex, rage. Those are the engines that drive great artists, every great man, a hole that can't be filled. That's why we're all such miserable assholes. Um, Do you believe that? I, I don't think it's necessary, but I think 100% of the times it helps. It helps not just with the product and, and its overall feeling of naturalism, and our organicness, uniqueness, but I think overall, um, it can only fuel. It can only add more color and dimension and and tactility, if that's even a word. Like more more feeling, more sensation. I think that there has been art that was created out of love and happiness. Um, it's it's more than possible, you know. Uh, Lauren Hills made songs about her son. She made a song uh, about uh, called "To Zion," and she basically like is for about four minutes, just like gospel, hip hop, soulfully, you know, rapping about the happiness and joy that her son brought her. And it's it's you know it's goose it's goose it gives you goosebumps. It's very enthralling. It's very real. But like I said, I don't think it's it's a necessity, but it's something that is a hundred percent like it is like a rocket fuel for for the the motivation of of it and and also I think if anything, I think it's a more solid motivator than if someone tells you that they just adore something and love it off the bat. I think that it can actually lead to more um creation stances in in what it is that you're creating when you come across criticism and you come across adversity and you come across struggle so that alone is kind of like the nature of artistry it's it's you build and you destroy you build and you destroy that's because you know you can't just continue on the same lane you know no, no artist can make uh 15 albums about the same thing over and over and over again it's it becomes repetitive and there, there's no there's no like transformation throughout that so you're just like basically listening to like a broken record you're listening to like a broken tape it's just like this non-stop conundrum it so like i said uh, just to go back on it i think it's not necessary but when it is there it's it definitely fuels it it definitely is very something very powerful to like incorporate 
I, I think that life requires conflict. Without without conflict, there's no opportunity to to grow. And sometimes that conflict is is harder than than other times. But that conflict can also uh, aid our our creativity. I mean, I don't want to use like a historical reference, but you know, maybe this is also like out of left center field. But like you know, Van Gogh, he cut off his ear to confess his love to a woman. You know, just the the that's very visceral. That's very violent self-mutilation like said something horrible to obviously do to like human form but that's something that came out of yeah he mutilated himself but that's something that came out of his love that was the way he was gonna like prove his love for that that woman and you know maybe she's insane through pain (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that's masochistic but how is it that he was able to kind of reflect love and passion into like, I'm going to cut my ear off and send it to her. And that's going to, that's going to do it. That's going to seal the deal right now. You think (laughs) there was a process of reflection somewhere in there? I mean, he's a painter, right? So he wasn't going to, was was he, was he going to, was he going (laughs) to gouge his, was he going to gouge his eye out and send it to her? That would kind of like really ruin. Yeah. I I just don't know if there's a right, part of your body that you send <laughs> <laughs> no i mean no uh, i think i think when van gogh was like out with his boys and like his girl would call him they'd be like his boys would be like oh she's she's got she's got your balls in her purse right he'd be like no nah, but she got my ear <laughs> she got my ear that's why i can't pick up the phone i can't hear you <laughs> i only got one ear very valuable but like that's like i mean that's not Something that kind of like concretes this argument. It's kind of something that adds like a different flair to like what we're talking about. But I do think that there are plenty of people, you know, like look at a lot of artists in the 60s, you know, a lot of, you know, maybe a few few bands, a few singers. They had maybe five or six albums about a pet or a lover or a groupie or someone that they adored. And, you know, it brought them so much joy that they were able to to write something so beautifully. And I think on the other side of that coin too, purple A's, you know, you know, a lot of, yeah. And a lot of, a lot of sadness can also come out of you being deeply in love. I think because like, you know, like the, the, the fear of, of losing something that you, you care so much about, like, you know, R. Kelly, you know, I don't know if we're allowed to talk about R. Kelly. He also wrote a song in, uh, I think it was the late nineties, uh, called the hands of time. And like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very reflective song about, him and his girlfriend being in a, in a car accident. And, you know, just, just to play off that idea, you know, like even the pain can be beautiful and vice versa. I think that's what, that's so wonderful about art itself is that, like Evan was saying before too, and in, in his initial, you know, uh, statement about it was, you know, it's like what experiences does someone go through and, and what's the, the therapeutic state of of the creation or or the the product that they've put out yeah so you guys agree basically it 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 helps that uh, a lot of beauty a lot of beautiful art can come from from pain but it's not necessary necessary, a lot of a lot of beautiful art can come from love and 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 positive emotions as well yeah maybe we could say yeah uh those emotional components inform art, whether they are painful or or loving. 
What do you think? I pretty much agree. I I think I think I think I think in order to make great art, I think you do need to have struggled in life, but I also think that everybody has struggled in life. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't think that yeah, certain people have it easier than other people, but I think everybody's got their own problems and their mm-hmm. own struggles to overcome. Yeah. Um it's easy to dismiss someone who has a lot of money to say, oh, well, everything is easy to them. I mean, in certain aspects, financially, everything is easy to them. But I think everybody's got, everybody's got problems. Um, you Struggle know, like to to, to quote a to quote a, a Warren Zevon song, uh, "Rich folks suffer like the rest of us." Right? I mean, everybody everybody has troubles, um, and I think that the 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 key is to channel that stuff into something mm-hmm. positive. And Absolutely. for a lot of people, it's 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 their creative outlets. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. A, a lot of a lot of beautiful art comes from love. But the thing is, you don't know what love is unless you've also experienced hate. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You gotta you gotta experience both sides of the coin. If your life is great, you don't know that unless your life has also been terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the feelings are universal. Yeah. And just and just just to think about all these artists like, you know, just to spill a few like Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, people basically anyone who's like also in like the 27 club who just had yeah. everything going for them, you know, like like you watch uh, MTV Unplugged with Nirvana and there are so many people Man. who are so happy to be in that room, right? And the most miserable human being is Kurt Cobain and it's the writing is the writing was on the wall for like the 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 that self destructive nature, which you knew made it that much more beautiful. I think at the end all was the fact that, you know, like there was a limited amount of stuff that was created by him, and it it creates a more potent uh, uh, admiration for that that catalog that he's left behind. You know, even the documentary that uh, was shot with the, the band and and with Courtney Love. Um, you know, just Montage like of a, Heck? yeah, yeah, like when uh, he, he said just his poetry and the the writings, and you know, like I remember he got like an advance for a record, and the first thing he did, he's like, he's like, he told Corny Love, he's like, I want to be a drug addict. Like, how do you how, like? Is it also like just a sheer like recklessness for his own life that he just didn't care? It's just. Is that what also added so much more, like, uh, made, made the work and the the music so much more sought after by, by the fans was the fact that there was kind of, like, an expiration date on this person and, like, kind of, like, have to get it, like, while it's hot and while it's in and basically, like, yeah, him ending his life or his life stopping basically, like, allowed him to really become this, like, timeless person, you know, like, if other artists like I don't want to compare Britney Spears to him, but like you know someone like that who didn't off herself, didn't you know get killed or whatever. Like, not to say that a lot. There's not a lot of people who still admire Britney Spears for like those golden years, but like, look how someone like that kind of fizzled out from like a, a sheer height of real greatness, like like uh, like iconic, like and it just like for. 
for someone like going Cobain, out on top is what you're talking about. Yeah, and then like someone like Cobain or Winehouse or or Mac Miller, it's like an apotheosis that happens after. It's like they basically are on this high pedestal of celebrity dumb and kind of iconicism, and then they die, and then it just lifts them up even higher into into like but, the heavens and. But Winehouse, Winehouse, and and Mac Miller were accidental overdoses, no? Yeah. Whereas Kurt Cobain was a suicide. Yeah, shotgun, toe. So yeah, it's it's just a little bit different. But I think I think, um, you know, when you go to extremes, you find extremes, right? Kurt yeah. Cobain was obviously a very troubled person, and that extreme led to his extreme. Uh, was partially responsible for his extreme talent as well i would i would imagine um nirvana is you know like we said with scorsese gonna be one of the is going down in history as one of the greatest bands of all time right yeah created um, a whole sound. nirvana nirvana is grunge you know you can't you can't talk about the grunge genre without talking about nirvana and what's funny is like it's such a double-edged sword. I feel like when when you when you reach success in 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 a genre that's all about fuck the mainstream, right? Nirvana is without a question a mainstream band, is it not? But it is a grunge band, which is about um, going against the mainstream. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So in your pursuit to not be popular, you become popular. Mm-hmm. And I think also and that's what I think with when. Them. <laughs> When that becomes be so ingrained, when that becomes so ingrained in your persona, I feel like you 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 experience this internal conflict, this identity crisis, right? It's like, oh my god, like my dreams are coming true. I'm I'm part of I'm part of like a, 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 a an enormously popular band, but oh wait a second, my whole I- ideology is to not be popular. It's to be it's to be kind of sequestered. To it's be to be the contrarian, isolated. but yeah, you can't be, be the contrarian when you're the most popular band in the world. <laughs> like everyone knows your name, you know, everywhere you go. Like, yeah, that, you that's, you're not underground. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was that maybe the thing that led him to his suicide? Was that it? Like you said, his whole, his whole ideology was shaken and he, like at the end of the day, supposedly... All he wanted to do was to do drugs and, you know, kind of just like fizzle away into like nothingness and, you know, just be forgotten when, like you said, on the contrary, on the, on the other side of that whole thing, he, he actually made himself, you know, timeless, even though he, I can't, I can't, I don't think that there's a single answer. I can't, I don't think you could say this is why. And if it wasn't for this one thing, he -hmm. wouldn't have done it. Yeah, we'll never know. I mean, look at the success of like his his, his drummer, like David Grohl, like had uh, the Foo Fighters. Oh, David Grohl's a phenomenal that's, musician. That's dude. what I'm saying. So like, like look at that. Like that's just another very fine example. Like you know, he lost the front man and uh, a friend of his, you know, uh, and he was able to create another byproduct of of that with you know he used it as maybe a, a catapult or like as uh, as a, as a fuel. To make sure that, you know, the the memory or the that that electricity that was initially, you know, um created by Cobain, I, I think it really like was able to launch him into also like being an iconic musician. Like I agree a hundred percent. I think he's phenomenal, he's super talented and you know, ever long like I, I've seen just countless covers of it. Like they had 
7,000 musicians in a park. If anyone ever wants to see that video, it's awesome. It's like a bunch of classical uh, musicians all in a park, each playing a part of Everlong, like in, in orchestral form. It's it's brings you to goosebumps without it, without a doubt. It's either that or you're dead. And the, the song, uh, the song, my hero, yeah. uh, the Foo Fighters song, my hero is about Kurt Cobain. Yeah. And, and did you know the first Foo Fighters album? David Grohl was the only band member. He played all the instruments. Yeah, man. That's that's wild, dude. And that's... I think he had to he had to, he had to put a band together. He had to get for an actual tour. band when he had for to tour. go on tour. Yeah. Yeah, for tour. Yeah. Like, yo, man, you can't it's like, play I'm all not the that fast. <laughs> it's like and the New York Yankees are playing the Missouri David Grohls and it's just him like <laughs> Throwing the ball, <laughs> catching it, throwing the first base, or like running. Into yeah, the it was like the like, flash running yeah. around the field. Well, you know, uh, Nine Inch Nails is one person as well. Yeah, is that true? Nine Inch Nails is one person. Yeah, he he creates all the music digitally, and then he hires a band to play with him. Yeah, like uh, oh, but I think I think for Foo Fighters though, like the, they actually became a real band though. They did. It wasn't just for tours. Yes. So you're saying Nine Inch Nails, all the studio albums by Nine Inch Nails is is one guy? Yes, I'm I'm fairly Trent sure Reznor. Trent Reznor. Right? I didn't know that. Yes, Trent yes. Reznor. And Trent Reznor. Yeah, is I huge I know him. I I just thought he was the front man. I didn't realize I didn't realize that he was the only band member. Yeah, that's that's news he to is. me. That's pretty mind blowing. He is Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> that's like that's like that's like Gorillas too, right? It's one guy, mm-hmm. but it's like this animated band that doesn't <laughs> exist. Get exactly. out of here. Are you serious? Yeah, the gorillas. Yeah, the yeah, gorillas. You know gorillas, right? I know gorillas, but I thought all those people are like basically like a caricature artist, like kind of like No. There is no them. real counterpart to any of those people. They're all <laughs> wow. fake. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, and like the band obviously frequently does features and stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you don't like an underdog story, you can go fuck yourselves because these people <laughs> played an entire band by themselves. <laughs> all right. So if that's not enough to be like, you deserve an award, you deserve a platinum uh, record, I don't know what is. Even if it sounds like Gaka, the fact that you just take the time to, I'm going to learn every instrument, even mm-hmm. the ukulele. And the harmonica, and I'm just gonna make a whole album by myself, and pretend like it was a whole band. That's it's wild. That's crazy, dude. Like, get out of here. You could. There was uh there was an interview one time with the Beatles. I don't remember which Beatles said this, mm-hmm. um, but they go. The the interviewer said, "Is is Ringo Starr the best drummer in the world?" And and whoever it was, Paul McCartney or or John Lennon or, or George Harrison, whoever it was, they go. He's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was, really good, that was actually a really good impression of a Beatle. <laughs> That's got to be such a wild and surreal experience, though, to, to walk out on a stage and have, like, t- tens of thousands of people there just to oh, see you imagine. screaming your name. Well, they, know, I- they know everything about you. You don't, know, you don't know who any of them are. Yeah, like, what about, like... Stepping onto a stage like a full live band that's gonna like recreate all the sounds like naturally. Like I remember we went to see Lupe Fiasco. Oh man. Just a great entertainer, man. Like he didn't have like the the one DJ in the mic. He had a drummer, yeah. he had electric guitarists, bass bassists, uh chorus uh singers. It was just awesome, man. Like and like it not just like like a guy on the piano just like playing 
the melody he wants and then looping it. Like he's just jamming the ivories the entire time. And it's like that also, like, for, like I can't imagine what it's like to step out in front of a roaring crowd of people with their phones on you, but also like to walk out on stage and to see all the sounds become like personified with a person like instructed or designated to like carry that groove. Cause like you're in a studio usually and like how many people could you possibly be in uh, conference with uh, when it comes to making an album? Uh, a studio is usually a very cozy, refined area where, you know, like a lot of this stuff kind of gets added on a need to know basis and like, oh, like, you know, since you added that great bar, you know, now we're going to call in a, a violinist to kind of like give you a harmony with it or, oh, wow, like you definitely like accented the 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 drummer so well or the percussion so well so now we're gonna bring in a bassist to like make basically like follow the 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 cadence that you're going by with your with your lyrics or whatever like you're coming out on stage to perform it and there's like 25 people with you who are probably the best at what they do granted and they're just like jamming out on a cello you know right next to you and you were just like eating powdered donuts next to like a sound engineer and producer, like breaking night trying to like complete a track or a record just to compile it onto an album and take it out on tour. Like that's probably the craziest sensation ever too. I can't imagine what that feels like. Yeah. I was actually saying like earlier, um, you know, my ultimate dream is not to kind of become some sort of like award-winning famous uh, filmmaker. I mean, would be nice, <laughs> but it's not, it's not really like my goal. My goal is to just like kind of just be able to make a living off of it and not have to do anything else, you know? Yeah. That's really all I want. That would be nice. That'd be the goal. And, or also one day to hear someone who does win a major award, you know, owe it all to you or, or, or say that you were a big portion as to like, what kind of motivated them or inspired them to, to get to that level too. Like that's, I think also something that's probably very fulfilling in its own sense. And it could happen at any point in your life. You know, it could even happen years and years later. Like you, you find out that someone who's very, very, you know, famous or someone who's established because of, you know, basically delving into like your catalog or, or seeing the things that you had to face or listening to this podcast and being like, you know, maybe learning from our mistakes or, you know, kind of just understanding that, you know, it's not always uh, something that you hit out of the park and it, everyone loves it. You know, like you have to understand that you'll just, you'll never make everyone happy. The the one that you really should always focus on, I think is making yourself happy uh, with whatever it is that you're, you know, creating in that, in that span of time that, you know, you're doing it. That's what makes it valuable in the end. Yeah. And also, if this podcast has inspired anybody to do anything, um, you're contractually obligated to give me 20% of it. <laughs> yeah. and Because if it I'm, wasn't for me. <laughs> and I'm 0.5% of that 20%, so do the math. Yeah. Evan, what's your cut? I take what's left. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's left? What do, you, what do you mean what's left? Do you, what, do you, what do you mean? 80%? <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> All right. Thanks for tuning in. Um, please follow us on Instagram at Spinning Real Films, on Twitter at Spinning Real F, 
and email us at spinningreelfilms at gmail.com. That's R-E-A-L, spinning real, R-E-A-L, films. Um, if you have anything you want to say regarding anything that was talked about on this episode or prior episodes or something you want us to talk about on future episodes, don't hesitate to reach out. It does not go straight to trash. Anything to add, boys? Uh, it's always a pleasure. Love chit-chatting with you guys. Uh, whoever's out there listening to us, we appreciate it. And, uh, you know, always continue to inspire. That should be your only aim. And most importantly, join the cult. With different colors, lovers to haters, friends turn into backstabbers. I walk with the heat to protect me from the cold. Surroundings I'm in, where everyone's after my gold. For the right amount of cash, your boy will leave your ass face down the back list like a snake in the grass. So if you don't remember shit, remember this: keep your enemies close and friends at a distance. Don't let it be a shot where they roll with you for props. They're scheming to put your ass in a wooden box. They say they're there for you with a fake hug and cry, but at the right time, they're no different from a spy. Exploiting you every way to get what they need they're vanishing into the black night like a fiend take it from me there's cuts in my back under the skin so never let the smith and west and rest that's my lesson i'm growing up in this world full of jealousy and haters who pull the dress of blood can tell who is greater and people pull triggers and don't think about later where they get slayed just for being a traitor i've got blades to my back moves covered by a nike sack inside of rhymes i pack ready to throw in a track Going through hatred, made my solid trust crack. Love me for who I am, not for my money stack. Some people will hang around and act like your friends just to look cashed up from a ride in your bends. If you just beat me on my back, you don't have a life. If you just me face to face, you won't have a life. Listen close to my rhymes and read between the lines, and you'll find that I'm talking to you in different times. People try to get respect and rise with true lies to lie. I mask them as they upsize in disguise. This is for the backstabbers. This is for the fake ones. Fake guns, fake guns. Who with you for the cake, son? This is for the backstabbers. This is for the fake ones. Fake chumps on the road to take you down till you're done. This is for the backstabbers. This is for the fake ones. Fake guns, fake guns. Who with you for the cake, son? This is for the backstabbers. This is for the fake ones. Fake chumps on the road to take you down till you're done. Hell's deepest layers reserved for betrayers. They might do a favor to get a little closer. Backstabbers, they're like vultures with blades. They'll be here forever, there's not enough rage. To wipe them all out and creep upon you with grace. Stab you in your back and smile up in your face. I was the one they could come to for guidance. So wise in my eyes weren't the widest. It's ironic. So when the guts brushes away the dust, who am I to trust when nobody's honest? They got the guts to ask for forgiveness when I should leave them staring at the back of their eyes. I can say the names and put them to shame, but that give them some fame. So fuck that way. All I gotta say is fuck them and anyone who knew how they rolled and didn't tell me, son. It's like one once what he doesn't consume. Together he disguised himself in the costume. Talks to whoever has it as if he respects him. And when he's not listening, the lights turn dim. Snatches everything around without a sound. Then he turns on the lights and gives you a pound. Acting like he always have your back and shit. But truly meaning he'll put a knife to it. And, shit. and when you find out, you put a knife to his back What you do with physically and beat him tough, skulls crack I've been fucked over by many, I started to change I popped fake ones as if it was shooting range Never said a word to let them know what was coming I left them with a the surprise, that was life stunning They thought I walked around with an empty mind But so much was going on and that's how I survived This is for the backstabbers, this is for the fake ones Fake guns, fake guns, who with you for the cake, son? This is for the backstabbers, this is for the fake ones Fake chumps on the road to take you down to 
This is for the fake ones. Fake guns, fake guns. Who would you for the cake, son? This is for the backstabbers. This is for the 